Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in the first of our summer specials, we're breaking out of the news cycle to take a look at some of the big policy questions facing the UK. This week, we'll be starting with everyone's favourite topic, Brexit. It's been a year since the UK voted to leave the EU, and the negotiations are well underway. But how much do we know about what Brexit actually means, what it's going to look like, when will it take place, and what the UK's future on the other side is going to be? To dive into this, I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Barker, the FT's Brussels Bureau Chief, our business editor Sarah Gordon, and Henry Newman, director of the Open Europe Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. So let's begin with what we know about Brexit. 52% of British voters back leaving the EU in the referendum last June, and there hasn't been any notable change in public opinion since then. So the government is pushing ahead with the will of the people. Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty was triggered at the end of March, so unless anything substantial changes, we are leaving in March 2019. The initial round of talks between Michel Barnier and David Davis haven't produced much progress, and all eyes are on the next few months to see if progress can be made on those crucial initial topics – money, citizens, rights and Ireland. So Alex Barker, let's begin with the Brussels perspective on this. There's a lot in the Brexit debate. It's what the UK thinks and what the UK wants. What's the view across the channel about where we're at one year on? Well, I can give a Brussels perspective on the UK because actually... I think over the last year, the most important developments have been in the UK. And if you look at Remainers and the outlook they had in July last year, or June last year, they're wrong about two big things. One was the relative resilience of the economy. We've seen the pound fall, but it's been relatively stable. And also the resilience of public opinion in supporting Brexit. So they were wrong to some extent about the UK. I think if you look at Leavers, they were wrong about the EU. They were wrong about the complexity of the talks. They were wrong about the negotiating partner that has really emerged in this, which is the European Commission, rather than kind of backroom deals with Angela Merkel or the French president. And they were wrong about the unity of the 27, which has been pretty extraordinary, I have to say, after six years of being here. There's nothing quite like this in terms of bringing them together. And most importantly, I think the rush for a trade deal, the pace at which this could all be done has been a miscalculation as well and what we imagine to be a have your cake and eat it strategy has actually turned into rebuilding this relationship from the bottom up and that's going to be something that takes a very long period of time and if I could make one final point I talk for too long but what we'll see in the next year is whether time is going to make a difference to both those calculations from remainers and leavers and if you'll see a flip in the perspectives over the coming year. Well, Sarah Gordon, after the vote last year, we were obviously embroiled in the Conservative leadership contest and who was going to be Prime Minister. And then 
Theresa May entered Downing Street in the autumn and in January this year we had the Lancaster House speech which outlined how Theresa May saw Brexit coming out. But apart from that, there really wasn't that much detail until really quite recently. And we've started to get a bit more form on what Brexit's going to be. Crucially, that it looks like there is going to be a transition deal. But certainly from the perspective of business, there's been a lot more uncertainty than they would have liked over the past 12 months. Is that fair? I think it's extremely fair. I mean, the problem is that now, 13 months after the referendum vote, there is still no top level agreement within government as to what the strategic aims are of the Brexit negotiations. The cabinet is split. There's no clear line on what sort of single market access we're going to argue for, what sort of immigration regime we're going to have. And I think that although it's certainly true that the most important concern for business was the avoidance of a cliff edge, i.e. us crashing out of the EU without any kind of deal in March 2019. That's only one of a number of concerns. Now, what we have seen, the big change since the general election and the weakening of Theresa May in the wake of it, the big change we've seen is a far greater acknowledgement within Cabinet and a much stronger voice, as people like Chancellor Philip Hammond have been strengthened by the general election result a much stronger acknowledgement that there has to be a transition period and some kind of deal that covers that transition period. Now, as we said this week, what Hammond is now arguing for is a standstill deal. So we have a standstill on current arrangements for the necessary time for the future arrangements to be bashed out. But that's still very, very high level. I mean, if you are a business and you are trying to work out what investments you're going to make in the next five to ten years, if you are thinking about your people and where they're going to be able to work and whether you're going to be able to move them around, you still have absolutely no more clarity now than you did on the 24th of June last year. There's a certain sense that business is going to give the government the benefit of the doubt, or it has been, but that will run out at some point if these details aren't sketched in, which we'll come on to in a moment. I don't really think that's the case. I mean, I think business is trying very hard to give as much input as possible so that its priorities are listened to. Before the general election, one of the biggest concerns were that those priorities were simply not being recognised in Downing Street and that with Theresa May's former advisers, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, they were providing a sort of barrier and a very deep resistance to listening to business concerns. I think that has eased, but business is still very worried that there is a lack of detail. It's not just the lack of the strategic priorities being set out clearly. It's also that underneath that, there is a lack of detail. I mean, as you were saying, and Alex was saying, the complexity of the negotiations on issues like customs arrangements, what kind of IT system we will have to manage our immigration. All these are a lot of work. They require a lot of detail. We're absolutely not even near that level of work at the moment. So Henry Newman, give us your perspective on where we are, because what we heard from Philip Hammond this week on the transition, the off-the-shelf deal, seems quite logical in a way, because as Alex was saying, the EU27 have been very united on their aims here and wasting time trying to negotiate a bespoke transition deal where time should be spent on what the eventual thing looks like. 
are you confident that we can get a transition deal that works politically and practically? And then where does that leave us after that? So I'm very attracted by Philip Hammond's call for an off-the-shelf transition deal. I don't think we should let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I don't think we should search for a Goldilocks transition. Let's concentrate on putting our energies into the complexities of our future arrangement. And exactly as Sarah was saying, there's a lot of complex detail still to be worked out. And government and Whitehall, the civil service, have not made sufficient process in getting through these quite technical decision-making hurdles. And I think it's been six months now since the Prime Minister laid out her vision of Brexit at Lancaster House. And with the exception of a few other interventions, the Article 50 letter and so on, we've had very little else. And I think despite the shock of the election result, it seems that the Lancaster House position has broadly held with the question of a transition in parentheses. But I think we need an update now from the Prime Minister. We need to understand what the government's position is going to be. And it can only be the Prime Minister who gives that update, because in the absence of real clarity about the next steps, we're seeing different cabinet ministers making different interventions on different news programmes, and business and the public are responding by taking the quite sensible conclusion that the government hasn't got an agreed position. And I think if the Prime Minister comes into the new political term in September by laying out in a major speech the next stages of Brexit, including the plans for the transition. I think there'll be a lot of reassurance taken from that. It's my understanding that that is what Downing Street is planning to do, that over the summer, having rebuilt their operation, given the election issues, they are now going to go away and try and add some form to that and put details in there. Because, of course, Alex, there is the EU summit at the end of October, and this is going to be the real flashpoint for the government's Brexit strategy that by that point Theresa May needs to have laid the groundwork both within her party and with the country for this transition deal formally and also what's going to come after it. That's right. The transition is going to hit us quite early because really the Brexit bill can only really be solved by a transition that whittles it down and allows the UK to be paying for something that's not a kind of extortionate bill for the past. So the transition will have to be addressed early. The EU at this point is saying, no, 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 we want to leave the transition right to the end. They're quite happy to see lots of uncertainty. They're quite happy to see uncertainty drive business from the UK to the continent. So October is really going to be a big moment in in looking at whether we're going to move into a different stage of this negotiation and whether the UK has really grappled with the politics around a transition what it means in terms of the ECJ, money, free movement, to be able to engage in a real negotiation about what that might involve. Sarah, one thing that we keep coming back to is this question of detail, the idea that the government hasn't quite got the detail right here. And from the Brussels perspective, they certainly seem to be better on that, but there is much bigger bureaucracy, so that's maybe not a particular surprise. But there does seem to be one man who has emerged, particularly over the past few weeks, who is good on detail, and that's Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, who was quite surprisingly stayed in his job because before Theresa May's botched election, he was expected to be sacked as being a Ramona or the EO of the government, whatever you want to call it. But in fact, he's very much filled this power vacuum that resulted after Theresa May's reputation was shattered and has used that to move the debate on the transition deal, but also engage with some of the complexities of Brexit. And your reporting over the past couple of weeks has shown that business is liking that. Yes, I think they're liking it very much, in part because it contrasts strongly, not just with the pre-general election May administration, but with the Cameron administration before that One of the things that a business person who was at 
a meeting at number 11 Downing Street with Philip Hammond and his closest advisers on Monday said to me is that it's very noticeable compared to other politicians and other chancellors he's engaged with that Hammond really listens really comes back. You know, if he's asked three questions, he will answer three questions. This person said that David Cameron would answer the first question, then wave off the second and third with a sort of cheery smile. Hammond really engages on all the questions that are being raised and also looks to dig into the detail behind what businesses is requesting or suggesting should be priorities. I think that the bigger point about the detail and Alex has made this point for many months, is that we in the UK argued that details of the trade deal should be hammered out at the same time, as you will remember, as the details of the exit bill and other very controversial issues. And the EU said right at the beginning that's not going to happen and it's stuck to that. The problem is that until you get those issues resolved and probably Christmas the end of this year, if we haven't reached a solution or an, at least a working position on those issues, so as you said, the exit bill the ECJ and Ireland and the rights of EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in the EU. We're not going to be able to get to the detail because the EU is not prepared to negotiate on a trade deal until those issues are resolved. How likely do you think that is, Henry? Do you think there's a chance that we will make progress by that point? I think we need to make progress. And I think, as Alex was saying before, the thing about accepting the idea of a transition is that it smooths a lot of the political difficulty with the EU exit bill. And we don't exactly know what the bill is likely to be, but Mr Juncker said in an interview with this paper's editor that it should be at least €60 billion. And it'll obviously be much easier for the UK to sign up to a larger amount. I don't think it'll be that much, but a larger amount if we're getting access to the single market through a transition. I'd like to highlight one other danger, though, that's looming. From the point of view of many on the Leave side, they're concerned that a transition could lead to what the CBI and others have called for, an indefinite transition period, which locks us into the single market and the customs union and is really a sort of a holding pattern for re-entry or re-accession. I personally think that's very unlikely, not least because it would be extraordinarily difficult to re-accede to the EU, having just left it at the end of the Article 50 process. But I think that Hammond is in danger of sounding disingenuous because he's saying in media interviews over the last couple of weeks that on Article 50 Day, we'll be leaving both the customs union and the single market. But then if he's also asking for a transition period, which is essentially a standstill, which keeps exactly the same apparatus in play, now that may be perfectly sensible, but I think people may begin to feel that what he's saying is actually disingenuous. So I think it will be important that whatever transition deal is ultimately agreed by the cabinet, they can present that as a transition. It must be transitory. It must not be a new permanent arrangement. It must lead to us actually coming out of the European Union. And I also think it's a strong case for leaving the customs union faster than potentially we leave the single market. I'll come back to that point in a moment. But politically, I think Theresa May probably doesn't have much choice on that because I think her backbenchers, many of them who supported leave, would not let her get away with an indefinite transition. Alex, if I'm right, I don't think people in Brussels would particularly want an indefinite transition either. I think it would be illegal if you actually put that into a withdrawal agreement. It would amount to a trade agreement and the trade agreements have a completely different kind of process for agreeing them. The European Parliament would be up in arms because they wouldn't have as big a say on it. They'd challenge it in court, it would uh, die. There's definitely going to be a cut-off date. The question for me is whether in British politics we're ready to enter into a period of two to three years of limbo 
where the main difference is we would have left the EU, taken back our MEPs, judges, commissioner, and given up our vote. But otherwise, almost everything would be the same. And the EU would have quite a degree of control over the UK statute book, over the exercise of law in the UK. And that provides certainty for business. But I don't know that that is what people imagine necessarily when they voted to leave. And it may be that the prospect of a trade deal, some kind of framework that is agreed at that moment will be a sweetener enough to see us through those two or three years, but it will be quite difficult. And actually negotiating the edges of that agreement, things like safeguard clauses and when can one party pull out, what happens if there's an enforcement issue, those kind of things could take up a good part of the next year anyway. So um, that, that's my big question. I'd be interested to hear what Henry thinks in terms of how bespoke a transmission needs to be to uh, pass Parliament. As I said before, I think the key thing is the transition needs to be one that we don't spend a huge amount of time worrying about. We need to be worrying about the future relationship. And I accept your point that for the period of the transition, we may end up being a rule taker rather than a rule maker, as the jargon goes. But I don't think that's that much of a problem as long as it's for a relatively short period. And I think the other thing the government will be keen to do during the transition is to show some of the differences that being outside the European Union will make. So agriculture and fisheries will be one area that will be presumably able to do a lot more in terms of our domestic reform on. And I think that it'll be important that the government actually shows some movement in those areas. But I think the nature of the transition itself, if Hammond is calling for an off-the-shelf transition deal, I mean, what is an off-the-shelf transition deal other than a combination of the EEA and EFTA? And those are options that Brussels has already accepted the compromises around. And as you say, a lot of the regulations would flow from Brussels, but there's a sort of slight disjunction. And the European Court you can take it through the EFTA court as the Chancellor floated on Friday morning. I think that would be possible for Parliament to wear as long as it was clear that Britain was leaving the European Union. Sarah Gordon, we were saying about the never-ending transition, it was the CBI who put this idea forward not long after the election. What was their purpose for doing that, do you think? Because as we've heard from Alex, Brussels wasn't really interested. I don't think politically it would be sellable in the UK. So was it just trying to reframe the debate or was this actually something they thought was a possibility? I think that when they put it forward, it was at a time when there seemed a possibility which now seems less likely which is of a cliff edge. It seemed last year under the Theresa May administration, there really seemed an absolutely casual acceptance. I mean, her constant reiteration of no deal is better than a bad deal for business. Which we've stopped hearing, actually. Indeed. And for business, no deal is much worse than a bad deal. Business people constantly say to me, we can deal with anything as long as we know what it is. The point is, is even a deal which made trade much more expensive, administrative burdens much more burdensome, they can deal with that as long as they know what it is. One of the things that people are talking about a lot now is if you look at the customs form that you need to export UK goods to outside the EU now to places like South Korea, you're talking about an enormous increase in the administrative burden around exporting. But they can deal with that if that is what is required. The point is the idea of a chaotic exit in March 2019 was something that the CBI and the business people that it represents and many others were extremely concerned about. So I think it was really trying to hammer up that point home. In the recent development of the way that Hammond and his cabinet allies and indeed those who aren't his natural cabinet allies like David Davis, the Brexit secretary, 
what they're talking about now is absolutely not an extended or indefinite transition period. They're talking about a one to two year transition period. And I think they believe in line with popular opinion that there is absolutely no political mileage in pushing for an indefinite transition. And as Alex says, it's not actually possible. (laughs) There is no procedural mechanism for the EU to implement that. I think it's worth pointing out we're talking about a one-two-year transition because of when we expect the next general election to be, which is in 2022, and the political calculation in the government is that you would have to have it all tied up, part and parcel done, before going back to the electorate. Up to to three years, I think, was Hammond yesterday on, on the radio. All I was going to say is that I think that comment, Sebastian, suggests again that we think that we will be dictating the timetable. The UK does not dictate the timetable or the final arrangement or the negotiations. It is the EU. And that has been made very clear. I mean, every single big issue that we said we would stand firm on or that the Conservative Party said it would stand firm on, it has had to concede. So our idea of working this for the UK electoral timetable, I think, dream on, (laughs) is my feeling. Indeed. Now, Henry, just talk about some of the other Brexit figures. So we've all said lots Mm. of very nice things about Philip Hammond and Theresa May's moderated position. What's your take on where David Davis, Liam Fox and to a lesser extent Boris Johnson are at the moment in terms of their influence in the Brexit debate and how much they're following the agenda and shaping it? So I think, as we were just saying, one of the things that's interesting about this transition arrangement is that it's actually shown that Michael Gove was one of the first people to come out and defend a transition on the radio last week. And I think that was one of the important realignments that's happening in the cabinet, that actually Brexiters and obviously Michael Gove and Boris Johnson were the two leading Brexit campaigners in the cabinet. And they seem relaxed about this idea of a transition. I'm not sure all the cabinet are necessarily singing from exactly the same sheet. And we saw Boris Johnson give a wide ranging foreign policy speech in Sydney this week, which did a sort of thought experiment about what would have happened if Australia had joined the European Union and the common market back in the 1970s. And it was a sort of very strong and very amusing, as you'd expect, defensive Boris's Brexitism. And that contrasts strongly with Philip Hammond's view, which seems much more that the sort of damage limitation exercise. So I think the cabinet is coming to a particular position, but Brexiters in the cabinet actually seem relatively pragmatic about this. And I think when I speak to most of the leading Brexit campaigners, their view is that the transition itself is a secondary question to the deal that we get on the outside. And I think what we need to be careful about in our future relationship is that we don't end up in some sort of position where we are permanently shadowing the European Union from outside. And we do need to actually be brave enough to separate ourselves sufficiently to actually gain some of the upside. And if we end up in a sort of outer sphere where we're permanently shadowing the EU and regulatory in other terms, we're taking all of the costs from leaving and not having much of the upside. And I think this is the final point I want to discuss here. We've talked a lot about the specifics of leaving and what that's going to look like, but we've heard curiously little from the UK government about life after Brexit. And Alex, I'd be very interested from the Brussels perspective on, you know, we have this transition deal where talks will begin on what the UK government would want is a wide ranging free trade deal that will cover all manner of different things. But again, it's quite concerning how little talk there's been from Westminster about what that's going to tell and what they want to see from that, because I'm sure Brussels has very key aims on this. It doesn't want to have a Singapore low-tax haven off the coast of Europe, and at the same time, it doesn't want to have all its rules undermined. Yes, and what you'll have to see in the next few months, really, if this is going to get going properly, is another kind of Article 50-style letter 
where the UK spells out what it sees that future relationship being, what they would want in a trade deal, and what they would want in a transition. I think that has to probably happen before the end of the year if there's going to be any serious headway made on that. The tone could change quite markedly here if you do get through the first phase of the divorce negotiations. Most leaders lift their sights. They don't really want to be doing the bean counting on divorce and they want to think about the future. They'll be willing to do that. But I think the expectations here about how much can be done by the end of 2019 are pretty low. I think they would want to see kind of headings and the scope of the agreement laid out. And you'd probably see an agreement on zero tariffs continuing. That's almost certain. But this will take many years after Brexit. And the dilemma for the UK with the transition is if you play the transition card early and you give the EU the things that they're looking for to make sure there's not too much disruption from Brexit, which is primarily the money, then they'll start relaxing on the trade side and think, well, we can talk to Britain once they've left. We may have even more leverage then. And you could see that drift even more. Sarah Gordon, from the City of London perspective, what does it want to see from that relationship after transition? Because obviously a lot has been written, discussed about financial services and protecting that part of the economy. Yes, the business hopes very, very much by sector. You've got regulatory issues which are paramount for some, like the pharmaceutical sectors. With financial services, I think a certain amount of realism has crept in since last June. And whilst in the immediate aftermath there were strong voices in the city arguing for, for example, retaining the passport, which would allow you to trade post-Brexit from the UK as if you were in the EU, I think there's a widespread acknowledgement that that's simply not going to happen, that there is actually not going to be single market access. There's also, I think, on financial services, Henry's point is absolutely key. If there is no regulatory shadowing, that has most serious implications for the financial services industry. And I think it's actually the sector where there's most likely to be the regulatory shadowing because it means that access agreements are likely to be predicated on that. I mean, the EU is not going to allow firms to continue to work out of the UK without that. That said, we've already had news of a number of banks and fund managers moving parts of their operations to Dublin, to Luxembourg. All the banks and the large financial services, the insurers I speak to, they all have pretty highly developed operational plans for getting staff and significant operations out of London once Brexit happens. I'd just like to say, I think one of the things that we've seen over the last year in particular, but even more recently over the last two months, is just how quickly politics has been moving. And that seemed to be a British phenomenon, but I think it's also a European phenomenon. And wind back the clock a couple of months, and it seemed that France was about to fall to a Eurosceptic president. And that now seems like a very unlikely possibility with the Jupiter King in place. But equally, if there'd been a 4% difference in the first round of the French presidential, we would have had two anti-Euro candidates in the final round. I think There's a lot of fluidity in politics in general. And that's part of the advantage, I think, for a transition, that it actually allows a period of calm and to work out some of these deep questions, exactly as Sarah was saying, what sort of regulation do we want for the city? What sort of regulation do we want for pharma? And to to take a bit more time over that. And hopefully politics will slow down a bit. And then finally, last brief question to you all, Alex, where we're standing here at the beginning of the summer holidays, how are you feeling about Brexit, would you say, based on where we've been over the last year, positive, negative, or about neutral? I think it's going to be an extraordinarily busy, turbulent autumn around this. I think the 
issues on the transition will be harder than we think, even though we've seen some big concessions made on the UK side. The EU are going to be quite rigid about it. And I think we might be mixing terms a bit in terms of what they think of as a transition. And then I think you may see, hopefully, a change in tone over the coming year and a bit more kind of collaborative work to work out what this relationship will look like in future. But there's going to be some shocks, I think, in the UK when they realise what the EU thinks would be a trade deal in its own interest. And I think in areas like financial services, we'll be lucky if they're engaging. And Sarah, from business perspective, it's obviously been good news and it's been bad news over the past year. So overall, positive, negative or about neutral? I mean, for big business, the big listed companies, Brexit is bad news. You can count on the fingers of one hand the chairman or CEOs of a FTSE 100 company who think that Brexit is a good idea. And I think whilst there is some greater optimism over business government engagement since the general election, there is still an enormous amount of worry about what a final deal will look like and how that will affect UK and indeed multinationals operating here. And last word to you, Henry, positive, negative or about neutral on the process and where we are in it? I think it's about neutral. I think there's obviously been a political setback with the election, but actually, as Alex was saying, I think the country hasn't really changed its mind. The economy has held up better than I think many people could have anticipated. Yes, it's very, very difficult and it will be very, very complicated, but equally, I'm not somebody who believes in a doctrine of impossibility or that something like this is beyond the wit of man. We can do it. So, a lot of neutral views there. That's it for this episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to Henry, Sarah and Alex for joining. We'll be back next week when we're going to be looking at housing and how the UK can try and unlock its current issues. Until then, thank you for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Listening.